This morning, uh, we are continuing the little two-part series entitled Beating the Enemy's One-Two Punch. Uh, and, and I want you to look, turn to somebody, look them right in the eye, and, and just say this. Say, I am through getting beat up. I don't, I don't think I believe you. Look at them again. Try it again. Say, I am through getting beat up. <laughs> some, some of the husbands in here are feeling a little threatened right now. Some of you are like, you're a little nervous saying that. Uh, but we're not talking about beating each other up. Uh, that's, not, that's not what we're dealing with. Last Sunday, I preached the first in this two-part series, uh, and we talked about unforgiveness. Because unforgiveness is the first punch of Satan's one-two punch. And if you missed it last week, it's online. You can listen to it there. Uh, I think these two messages, this theme of, forget, of unforgiveness or dealing with unforgiveness and, and uh, theme of bitterness are are two of the most important issues that, it, that the church in America has to deal with. And so I encourage you to listen to that if you didn't. But today we're going to be talking about the second punch. And the second punch in Satan's lethal combination is bitterness. And I'm going to deal today with the, with the issue of overcoming bitterness. I'm going to read two passages of Scripture. On the surface, they don't seem like they connect at all, but they both hinge on a single word in Hebrew. That Hebrew word is mara, which means bitter. But uh, you need to understand it means more than just slightly bitter in taste that you know that you, you might get after drinking coffee or something, which is why I don't drink coffee, by the way. Uh, it, it means bitter at an almost toxic level. It means bitter as in, as in poisonous. So you, you know, you can drink something bitter if you hold your nose and force it down and it wouldn't kill you. But the sense of bitter in the word Mara is that it's a, a level of toxic, toxicity that can't be tolerated. By the way, uh, I used to pastor in a church that had a woman in the church named Mara. So if your name is Mara, I apologize for, for making everybody call you bitter from this point, point on. But, uh, but both of these passages of Scripture that we're going to read depend on that word. The first passage is from Exodus 15, if you want to turn there. If you have your Bible, I hope you do. Uh, turn there. We're going to begin reading in verse 22. But let me set the scene for you. The Hebrew people have been led triumphantly out of, uh, out of Egypt after 430 years of slavery. Uh, they, they have been miraculously delivered. They have come out of Egypt they, not only have they come out of Egypt, but sometimes we forget they came out with massive amounts of gold and the treasures of Egypt. They made it all the way to the Red Sea and they saw God protect them from the Egyptian army that was coming up behind them with a wall of fire. And then God separates the Red Sea and then they walk through on dry ground and then the Red Sea closes on top of the Egyptian army and they drown. And in one moment, God wiped out the most powerful army on earth to show them that he was with them. I mean, they have had miracle after miracle after miracle after a miracle. And then they come to the wilderness of Shur on the other side of the Red Sea. And it's there where they're confronted with the issue of needing water in the wilderness, needing water in the desert. And they arrive at these pools of water that are that are probably, given the territory, they're probably alkaline. And it's not possible for them to drink the water without poisoning themselves. And they, they become angry and they turn on Moses. And now remember, these are people who have witnessed miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And now they come to these waters that are bitter or poisonous and they're ready to rebel against Moses. Let's be, begin to read about it in Exodus fifteen twenty two. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur 
And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. So the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he had thrown it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he tested them. He said, If you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will not afflict you with any of the diseases with which I have afflicted the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now turn over to the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, we, we read from the, uh, we'll read from the first chapter and beginning with verse 19. But again, I want to give you the setting here a little bit. The, the entire passage hangs again on that word Mara. We, you know, we call it the book of Ruth, but it, it might as well be called the book of Naomi because the greater part of the book is about Naomi. Uh, Naomi is a woman who was who married in in Israel in, in the village of Bethlehem, and she lived there with her husband and and two grown sons. And there was a famine that came through Israel, and they fled across the Jordan River into Moab to escape the famine. And there, as immigrants, they found success and prosperity, and God blessed them greatly. The only fly in the ointment for Naomi was that both of her sons married Moabite women, which were Gentiles, in other words. She was not happy about having these Gentile weddings, but she was blessed and prosperous and happy in that foreign country, so she accepted it. Now, eventually, the famine that had been in Israel catches up with them in Moab, and they lose everything. Naomi's husband dies, and then both of her sons die, and she finds herself stuck with worse than nothing, worse than nothing. Uh, She was was now as broke as she was and as impoverished as she was in, in Bethlehem. And all that she has, has, has fled has finally caught up with her. And she, is, she's, as I said, has, is, has worse than nothing. She's got these two, two Gentile daughters-in-law. And frankly, she doesn't really want either one of them. So she says to them, look, according to the Hebrew law, you should wait until I remarry and have another child. And if it's a boy, when that boy grows up to the point where he's old enough to marry the older of, the, of you two daughters-in-law, uh, then you, you can get married. Then if I have another boy and he grows up, he could marry the other daughter-in-law. She says, but listen, girls, the arithmetic is against us. The odds are against that ever happening. I'm too old to have another child. And, and by the time, I, if I did, by the time he was grown up, you'd be too old. So I release you both from the law. Go back to your people. Saying, go home. Well, one daughter-in-law leaves. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, has seen something in this family that she's not ready to let go of. Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, this famous speech whether, whether, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. I, I, you know, I always actually am a little amused at weddings because a lot of times that the bridegroom and the bride say that to each other in the wedding, uh, and I actually kind of chuckle a little bit because if we wanted to do it the way it went down in the Bible, you should have the bride say it to the mother-in-law. <laughs> wonder how that would go over. Changes everything, doesn't it? So anyway, Naomi goes back to Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She's broke. 
she, she's a widow. She, both are grown sons that, that, that would have had the responsibility of taking care of her in her old age. They're both dead. She has nothing, no social security, nothing. And worse than that, she's got this Gentile daughter-in-law stuck to the bottom of her shoe like bubble gum. So she comes into Bethlehem, and there the people rush out to her and say, Naomi, is that you? Now, it's really a kind of a rhetorical question. You know, if I hadn't seen Lee for many years, uh, I might run up to him and say, Lee, is that you? And of course it's Lee. I know it's Lee, but it's a way of expressing surprise. So the people come out to her and say, Naomi, is that you? In response, she makes a play on her own name, Naomi, because Naomi in Hebrew means full. Not full as in I just ate, but full of blessings, like a basket that's full of fruit. They say, no, Naomi, is that you? And she says, no, when I left the, uh, here, I was Naomi. Now I'm Mara. I left full of blessings, but I come home a bitter old woman. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Ruth, Ruth 1.19. So they both went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women, women asked, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the, the Almighty has brought great bitterness to me. I, I, when I, I was full when I left, but the Lord has caused me to return empty. Why should you call me Naomi when the Lord has opposed me? The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So, so Naomi returned from the land of Moab with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. And they came to Bethlehem at the start of the spring barley harvest. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the next few moments, I just pray that you, Holy Spirit, would brush aside every barrier to divine communication and that you would speak to us, Lord, by your might in the inner man of every listener. I know, Lord, that, that if I try to communicate your word in my own strength, then all of my efforts will be futile. But, Lord, I, I know that your spirit can make this word come alive in our hearts. And I know you want to heal us today, and we're believing you for that. And, I, Lord, I pray for those that may listen to this later on, on online. I, I, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would invade their homes with your power and your presence. And I pray that you would speak directly to them and work powerfully inside of their lives, Lord God. Lord, just have your way with us. And I ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today we're going to deal with the second of Satan's one-two knockout combination. The first, as we already dealt with, is unforgiveness. And the second one is a body punch. And it's bitterness. Now, why am I using the word body punch? I, I did some research on this, and the reason a body punch works is that if it's placed strategically, it hits the nerve that runs through that, through that area. So we're doing a little, talking a little boxing today. As I said before, I tried it a little bit when I was a teenager and quickly realized I, I enjoyed watching boxing from a distance, but not inside the ring. That was not for me. And so th- there are multiple places where a body punch can bring you down. You know, we think of a knockout as coming from a head headshot that knocks you unconscious but you can be knocked out of a fight by body punches the thing about a body punch is that it knocks you out and you can't fight the fight is over but you're not unconscious so if anybody knocks you i mean listen if somebody knocks you out cold you know at least you're unconscious and you don't have to hear the crowd cheering you don't have to see the guy dancing around gloating you right but with a body punch when it drops you on the canvas and you can't fight anymore but you're aware of everything that's going around you you're awake and you have to watch that other guy dancing around and the and, the, the, and you have to hear the crowd cheering and you're awake enough to know what's going on but you're still knocked out of the fight 
So there, there are two major areas where a body punch really works. The first, of course, you've heard of the solar plexus. Because right there, there's, there's something called the phrenic nerve. The phrenic nerve controls your diaphragm and therefore it controls your breathing. And when it gets hit, the signal is disrupted and you can't breathe. We call it getting the breath knocked out of you. Anybody had that moment where you, you're like, I'm going to die. You know, you just think, am I ever going to be able to breathe again? And it just, it, it, you know, really didn't knock the breath out of you. It simply interrupts the nerve signal that controls breathing and you can't move your diaphragm and therefore you can't breathe. So grasping for breath and I'm unable to breathe, you, you, you drop to the canvas. Now, it's easier to defend that, because, that punch because it's coming uh, right at your solar plexus, straight at you. That, that makes it easy to ward off the punch. But the more lethal body punch is the one that hits your liver, right? Right, you know, here in your lower uh, right ribs where your liver is. All the nurses tell me I'm right, right? This is right around here, right? Okay, so make sure that I've, that I've read it right when I was doing... I'm not a medical expert, but I'm, I'm a Google expert. So I looked it up that way. By the way, the worst curse that has ever come upon mankind for those who get any kind of symptoms is WebMD. Because you'll look it up and you will, have, you will have, give yourself the worst disease known to mankind. And everybody here knows, you know, you know it's true. But anyway, there is, there's a nerve in that location called the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve emerges at the back of the skull and meanders kind of in a leisurely way through the abdomen. It helps to re- regulate the heartbeat, control uh, muscle movement, keep a person breathing, and to transmit a variety of chemicals throughout the body. It's also responsible for keeping the di- digestive tract in working order. And when that vagus nerve is, hurt, is hit hard enough, it sends a signal throughout your entire nervous system for all the symptoms of, uh, systems of the body to simply shut down. And so you suddenly get weak and weary. You feel like you're collapsing. You can't fight. You can't run. You just simply shut down. Now, I believe that the body punch of Satan that follows the headshot of, of forgiveness is the body punch of bitterness. Satan is a roaring lion. He's just waiting for a moment of opportunity to hit you with bitterness, and it becomes a debilitating wound. It drops you to the mat, and you are helpless to do anything in that moment. I want to talk about, first of all, three ways that bitterness comes into lives. The first kind of bitterness is circumstantial bitterness. Bitterness can come into our lives through circumstances. Things happen that cause people to a certain extent to become bitter. Uh, Edith, Edith Schaefer, he wrote, she wrote a powerful book called Affliction. And she said this, she said, All affliction is either too much of something or too little of something. I mean, look at the Hebrews. When they came to the Red Sea, there was too much water. Then they got out in the desert and there was too little water. And and, and when they came to the water at Merah, there was too much bitterness. So, you know, so uh, the woman who is single says, I'm afflicted because I have no husband. Then she talks to a woman whose husband is violent and she says, there is such a thing as too much husband. And the, the lady who is barren, who has no children, and she feels, she feels afflicted because she has no children. But what about the old woman who lives in the shoe? You know, she says there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. The man who cannot find a job feels he's afflicted because he has no job. But the chief executive officer of five different companies who is under tremendous stress all the time would say, I have too much job. 
Life can come for, with all kinds of hits. And life can hit us hard. And, and listen, I don't want anything in this teaching today to sound as, to you as if I'm making light of the situation or circumstances you're going through. Some of you are going through heartbreaking circumstances. Some of you are going through horrible things. And I don't want anything I say today to sound like I'm not taking that seriously. But here is the question I think we need to ask ourselves. Why is it that two people seem to take exactly the same blow in life and one of them becomes bitter, but not the other? Here's Naomi. She said, I have no sons. I have no husband. I have no money. I have worse than nothing. So don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. She became circumstantially bitter. We'll come back to that question in a moment. The second way bitterness comes in is what I'll call dispositional bitterness. Some people nurture a disposition of bitterness. I I, I believe that there are people that have trace elements of bitterness in their disposition even when they're young. And as they grow older, it simply becomes more obvious. Uh, I heard about a group of college students who went to their college president one day because they were wanted to complain about one of the professors, one of the teachers. And they said, they said to him, they said, that is the most sourpuss old woman we have ever seen. They said, why is she like that? She comes into the class and the first thing she does is just yell at everybody and say, everybody sit down. They said, what happened to her? How did she become such a sourpuss in her old age? And that, that, that college professor in his wisdom looked at her and said, those, those young students that said, you're wrong. She did not become a sourpuss in her old age. She was a sourpuss when she was your age. She just got more sour the older she got. Listen, if you ever run across a a bitter old man or a bitter old woman, you can just about rest assured that what you're finding is someone who is a bitter young man or a bitter young woman who never dealt with the situation inside of their heart and they become more and more and more bitter as time goes by. Because the truth is, you can hide bitterness with makeup for a long time, but eventually it's going to show up. The signs of inward bitterness, uh, as it washes out on other people, are constant cynicism. You know, listen, I mean, we we need to ask ourselves, is this any any of this in me? Constant cynicism, harshness, uh, pessimistic view of life, a, a causticness. It's a dispositional bitterness that that just sees everything negatively and and everything is focused on you. You know, these are the people. um, I'll just tell you, I call them my Eeyores. Everybody know who Eeyore is? You know what I'm talking about? All right, so there's circumstantial bitterness. The second is dispositional bitterness. The third is habitual bitterness. I believe there, there are people who have become bitter simply because they have allowed themselves to be bitter. They are emotionally, what I mean is they are emotionally self-indulgent because it feels good to be anger and hold unforgiveness. We mentioned that last week. And then they pour it out on other people. That's the, that's the reason I call this a body punch because bitterness affects the body of Christ. It's social bitterness. It's, have, you ever, have you known people that when they walk into a room, it feels like six people left at the same time? 
They just kind of suck the life out of a room. That's what happens with bitterness. And bitterness can wash over a congregation. You saw it with the story of Moses. The murmurers affected the entire group. Naomi didn't just feel bitter. She pours it out on all of her fellow citizens of Bethlehem. She says, I left here full of blessings. But the reality is she has forgotten the famine. She did not leave full of blessings. She left to flee a famine. And, and, and the, those people that she's talking to stayed and she, they fought through the famine. She was not full of blessings when she left, but she sees her life in a completely negative way. I had everything and now I have nothing. H- have you ever known people who, who forget how bad things used to be and complain about how uh, bad they are today? They'll never be able to move into the things God has for them both now and in the future because they've let bitterness take hold in their lives. So uh, that's all to set this up. You've got circumstantial bitterness and dispositional bitterness and habitual bitterness. Now here's the question. This is what we need to talk about. How do we defeat bitterness? How do we defeat the second of Satan's one-two punches And in many ways, the issue today is defense. See, you can, in your boxing, you can counterpunch a headshot because if you have a strong enough jaw, you can take a shot on your chin and then beat your your opponent with a counterpunch. But but you don't want to counterpunch body shots. Uh, That's why you have to keep your elbows in because the body shots are more devastating in the long run on you. So you have to be in a defensive posture against body shots. You have to protect yourself from those things. So what is the great defense against Satan's body punch of bitterness? The first one of this. Listen, you need to write these down. First one is this. Practice praise for what you do have rather than concentrating on what you don't have. Practice praise for what you do have rather than concentrating on what you don't have. See, Naomi had lost track of what she had. Why, why couldn't she have said to those people in Bethlehem, yes, we had some, a difficult time in Moab, but let me show you something. I've got this beautiful little daughter-in-law who left her family and who left her country and who left her culture and she loves me and she cares for me and she's devoted to me and she's accepted my religion and she wants to be among us. I want everybody to meet Ruth, my lovely daughter in law but instead she says i'm bitter i'm just bitter i don't i just don't have anything well who's that with you nobody leave me alone we have to begin to practice concentrating on what we have rather than what we don't have because listen to me hear this this is if you don't hear anything else hear this today self-pity is a bottomless pit There's no way to fill it. You can't pour enough good things into the pit of self-pity to overcome it. Uh, I I heard the story of a widow at a church, and and I don't want to make light of her widowhood. That's a terrible thing, but her, her husband had left her very wealthy. He was a very wealthy man and he, and he left all of his wealth behind. He was heavily insured. She had a gorgeous home that was several thousands of square feet in size, completely paid for. She received money from this huge life insurance policy and she drove a beautiful luxury car, but she was the bitterest woman you would ever meet. She constantly reminded everybody about how she had lost her husband. She was the bitterest woman you can imagine because she could not see all the things that she had. Now, I want you to just 
file that woman away in your mind for a minute. I'm going to come back to her in a minute, but I want you to put that woman in a mental file and just hold her there until a little bit further on, okay? Everybody got the lady in the file? All right, here we go. Second discipline is this. Discipline your mind to speak with faith and joy. Discipline your mind to speak with faith and joy. If the joy of the Lord is our strength, and Scripture says it is, then we need to actually cause ourselves to speak joy by faith. Now listen to me for just a minute. I know there have been some excessive and sometimes erroneous teachings on confessional faith. Just confess it and possess it. And a lot of times it's led to goofy excess where people are, are naming, you know, naming and claim it. And they say, I want my neighbor's truck and I want him to have nothing. And, you know, and it's just, it's, that's not biblical. It's not what the Bible teaches. But I, I know that there's some goofy stuff that's taught. But listen to me. I want you to hear this about confession. Confessing God's victorious power over my circumstances is an important discipline in my life. God can handle this. God will deal with this. I have a joy in the face of this. I am an overcomer. I am more than a conqueror through Christ. Discipline yourself to speak of God's victorious power. If you want joy, speak joy. If you want a confident view of of life, then speak God's conquering power. We need to discipline our mind and discipline our tongue. And when we find ourselves feeding that bitterness inside of us by talking negatively about everything that's going on in our lives. And I'm not talking about ignoring the problem. I'm not talking about saying that everything is all hunky-dory when you're living in pain. But I'm saying in the midst of that, you need to learn to say, I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on the God who is bigger than this problem. I'm going to remind myself every time I can about how my God is greater, my God is victorious, and I am more than a conqueror through Him. We need to discipline our mind and our tongue. Instead, we often defend ourselves by blaming God. At the pools of Marah, the Hebrew people, they blame Moses. They attack Moses. It says that they murmured against Moses. You know, when I was studying at Southeastern University, Dr. Mark Rutland said to those of us who were there, who were pastoring or heading into pastoring, he said this. He said, remember, there are people in your church that are deeply angry at God. They would like to punch God's God's lights out. They would like to hit God right in the face, but they can't find God. But they know where you live. You stand up in the pulpit and say, God has sent me here and I work for him. He said, somebody in the back is going to say, get a rope. (laughs) But you know what? Naomi, she, she takes it to the next level. Because the Hebrew people blame Moses. But Naomi blamed God multiple times. Listen to her. She takes the whole thing to a very negative place. She said, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. God has taken everything I had. God has brought me home empty. God is against me. God did this. God has destroyed my life. God is, she's blaming God. By praising God and speaking joy and faith and confidence, we defend ourselves against the body blow of fastening blame on the, uh, of, on the circumstances on God. The third is this. This is kind of a hard one for us. Any, any control freaks in here? Let me, let me see your hands. Like, nope, nope, I'm in control. I'm not going to raise it. <laughs> this is a hard one. Understand that you may not be able to see what God is working out. You may not be able to understand the long-range plan for the hardship that you're enduring. 
You know, many years ago, uh, a minister that I know went to pastor a church that was in terrible trouble. It was bankrupt in every way, financially, emotionally, spiritually. And in the years that he was there, God miraculously turned things around. And, you know, he used to say, I heard him say this uh, before. He said, sometimes you can get a miracle that will just about kill you. Because it was just, it was just took so much time and effort, but God did this miracle. But it was a difficult time. Years later, he was sitting at the Thanksgiving table with his family, and he began to reflect on his time at that church and began thinking about, you know, uh, the, the hardships that he and his family had to walk through early on and seeing God do, do that miracle in that church. And he began to feel a little bit guilty, and he, he looked at everybody at the table, and he, and he said, guys, I want you to listen to me for just a minute. I, I may have made a mistake in going to the church he, he said to his kids, he said, I thought I was listening to the Lord. Your mom and I both thought we were hearing from God, but I may have made a mistake in going there. And if you got damaged in any way through that, I want to apologize to you if I made a mistake. And their son, who by that time was grown and married, had kids of his own. He looked at him and said, Daddy, I want to ask you a question. He said, why do you have to be the focus of every story? And, and, and the guy was taken a little aback by that. He said, what do you mean? He said, why does it always have to be about you? He went on and he said, listen, if we hadn't gone to that church, I would not have met this beautiful little brown-eyed wife of mine. He said, I, I wouldn't have three, uh, these three boys that you think are sinless and perfect and you're spoiling rotten. I, I wouldn't have them. He said, has it ever occurred to you that God did not send you to that church for anything about you? Has it ever occurred to you that God sent you to that church for me I can't speak for you but I can I just want to say something here I find it extraordinarily irritating when God speaks to me through my family (laughs) you know what I'm talking about but Naomi here she is she is so fixed on that moment her widowhood her deceased sons her poverty her that moment that she could not see what God was going to do she could not see that Ruth was going to marry Boaz she could not see that they would have a son named Obed that she couldn't see that his son would be named Jesse and she couldn't see that Jesse's son would be David the greatest king in the history of Israel she could not see what God was at work trying to do in spite of her suffering, in the middle of her suffering. She certainly couldn't see at that time to, to the, all the way forward to the time where the genealogy of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in the New Testament would list the names of only two women and one of those would be this Gentile daughter-in-law named Ruth. Naomi thought she had arrived at Bethlehem at the end. But scripture says she had arrived at the beginning of what he was doing. Bethlehem means house of bread. I don't know if you knew that. Ruth was the little oven in which God was going to bake the bread of life. Ruth, Naomi didn't have nothing. She had everything. She just didn't know it. The fourth, and this is the most important of all. The fourth way to defeat Satan's body punch of bitterness. Plunge the cross into your bitterest moments. And find healing. 
See, when the people of, of Israel began to murmur against Moses, Moses went to God and said, God, you've got to help, help me. These people are going to kill me. And it says that God showed him a tree. And when he plunged that tree into the waters of bitterness, the waters became sweet. In other words, the waters were healed. What a beautiful picture of the cross. When the cross is plunged into our bitterest moment, there is a flow of healing power that comes into our lives. And God doesn't want his children to live in bitterness, constantly murmuring and constantly complaining oh everything is bad this is not going to turn out right something's going to go wrong okay well we may be happy and rich right now but God knows we're going to be poor tomorrow we were born to be poor and we're going to die poor listen if that's how you approach life you're probably right God wants us to be able to embrace the cross in the bitterest moments of life and find the sweetness of Christ. He wants us to become sweeter Christians. We're to be sweeter as time goes by. He doesn't, you know, listen, if you know somebody that's walked with the Lord for a long time and they become more and more bitter, then that's a sign to them that to you that they haven't plunged the cross into the bitterness of their life. You know, one of the great heroes of the faith in the last century was a man, many of you probably never heard of him. He, he, he was known as Uncle Buddy Robinson. Anybody ever heard of Uncle Buddy Robinson? He, he was more kind of in the south, uh, known down further south. He was an eccentric and unusual holiness evangelist. He, he was anointed with the power of God, uh, but he was just as uneducated as a plate. And, and I mean, he, he was just a country boy that God lifted up and, and made a preacher out of him. And later on in his life, as he grew older, he began to pray. He said, God, I just feel like I'm not sweet enough. God, make me sweeter. And he said it became this multiple times a day prayer for months and months. God, make me sweeter. Make me sweeter. Make me sweeter. Constantly praying this. And then near the end of his life, he went for a doctor's appointment. And the doctor came out and said, buddy, I have bad news for you. Buddy, you've got diabetes. Well, buddy, Robinson said, doctor, I don't even know what that means. What is diabetes? And he said, well... Buddy, let me put it in layman's terms. I guess what it means is you've got sugar in your blood. And, and Buddy shouted out, praise God. I've been praying to make me sweeter and i got sugar in my blood. <laughs> now, wait. Do you remember when I told you to, to file that picture of that, that widow? Okay, let's take her back out of the box. Just making her more bitter being in that box. I, 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 you know, we talked about her. She was so angry with God. She poured her biz- bitterness out on the other, uh, on the people in her church. And, and I mean, people used to dread to see her coming up the stairs at church on a Sunday morning. How you doing, Margaret? Horrible, horrible. Can't sleep. I'm just miserable. Drove to church today in my luxury car, but I'm miserable. Well, I want to tell you about her sister. Her sister was named Ethel. She also attended that church. Miss Ethel was a widow. These, these two sisters were both widows. And Ethel's husband had been a working class man. He did not prepare for his death. He left her nothing but debt, no insurance policy. He had spent years paying the debts off, and now she had nothing. She had no children, and there was no one to take care of her. She lived all alone in a public housing unit. She was impoverished. She had arthritis in her, in her little finger so badly, and her hands were all twisted up. Yet, yet with all of this, she was one of the most joyful, happy, wonderful people, even though she had nothing. 
The pastor of that church used to go visit Miss Ethel, and he, she would brighten his day every time. In fact, when he would get discouraged, he would go visit her because he knew he'd come out feeling encouraged. And, and uh, one day the pastor went down to see her. He knocked on the door of her little public unit, and she didn't answer the door. And he knocked a few times. She didn't come, didn't come. And so finally he just started working his way around the back of this little apartment there that she was. And on the back side of her little apartment, there was this little tiny slab of concrete, you know, like two by three inches, inches, no, feet. That's what I meant. Two, or two by three feet. That would really be a small, like, let me, let me step outside. Anyway. She called it a porch. It, it, was, it, was, it was not a porch, but because she saw everything is good, she called it her porch. And it's just this tiny little slab of concrete off her back door uh, of her crummy little apartment. And, and he went around the building, and he could see her sitting on the porch with a big pan on her lap. And she didn't see him there at first. And, and she had this big pan on her lap, and she was snapping beans. And, 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 and he could see her wince in pain with every bean that she snapped but all the while, she could, he could hear her as she's snapping the beans, singing, Count your blessings, name them one by one. And he was watching her, he's listening, and he, he thought to himself, What blessings? I mean, what could her blessings be? She, he began thinking, She doesn't have to count very high. She doesn't have anything. And she finally saw her pastor and said, Oh, pastor, you're here. Come here. Let me tell you the wonderful news. The pastor said, Miss Ethel, what, what are you praising the Lord about? She said, well, the lady next door has just had a baby, and I'm just praising God. I had a little extra money to buy some food, and I'm cooking her supper, and I've got the strength to do it and the money to pay for it, and I'm just thanking God. Both of these women were, wid- were widows. They were sisters. Both had been raised in the same family. One had so much, and one had nothing. One was living in the sweetness of overcoming power and the other was living in the defeat of bitterness. Now, I know many of you remember some of these old songs, but listen listen to the joy in them. You remember this one? Praise Him, praise Him, Jesus our blessed Redeemer. Or this one, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Some of you keep singing. Or, or this one, I love this one. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Or one of my favorites. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I mean, listen, it's enough to make you want to get up and do a little Jericho march. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> who, who wrote those? Who wrote those songs? The songs were written by a little blind girl named Fanny Crosby. She wasn't born blind. At six weeks old, she caught a cold and developed inflammation of her eyes, and they put a mustard poultice to treat the discharge, and according to, to, to Fanny Crosby, this procedure damaged her optic nerves and blinded her. So she grew up blind. She got married, and her husband was blind. They had a daughter. They named her Frances, but she died in her sleep soon after birth. 
Now imagine this, blinded by a medical mishap, married to a blind man, and her only daughter now dead. If there was ever anybody in the world that would have the right to be bitter, it seems to me that it might be that girl. Instead, Fanny Crosby said, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain free to offer a healing stream flows from Calvary's fountain. See, Fanny Crosby, she said, look, I've had bitterness, I've had pain. But she said, I take the cross and I plunge it into all the bitter waters of my physical affliction and it heals me. I be- it becomes a healing presence. So we say, I take the pl- cross and I plunge it into the bitter waters of my failed marriage. I take the cross and plunge it into the bitter waters of my financial distress. I take the cross and plunge it into the bitter waters of whatever I'm facing. And I become not simply a winner, but in that moment I become more than a conqueror. More than a conqueror through Christ who loves me. See, the cross is not simply about the forgiveness of my sins. Though that is wonderful. I thank God for that. The cross is also about the healing of my entire life. It's about the healing of my life. So let Satan come. Let the the lion roar. Let him punch. But I am protected with praise. I am surrounded by the glory of God's presence. And at the end of everything, I'm healed by the cross. Somebody in this place, give God praise. Would you do that? Let's stand together all over this place this morning. We just sang it. Sing it with me. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. Free to all a healing stream. Flows from Calvary's mouth. Now, if you bow your head, close your eyes right where you are. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Nobody looking around because I want you to shut yourself in with just you and God. Maybe today you'd say, Pastor Dave, please pray for me. Pray for me because I'm tired of getting punched by Satan's one-two punch of forgiveness and bitterness. I I don't want this anymore. I don't want to be bitter. I want joy unspeakable and full of glory. I want to be surrounded by victory. I want to be an overcomer. I want to be more than a conqueror. I want to be sweeter. I'm tired of all this. I don't want this in my life anymore. I don't want it flowing out, uh, out of me onto other people. If that's you, I want you right where you are just to slip your hand up and say, that's what I'm struggling with. Yes. I see hands already up. You know, it's so easy for this to creep up on us. We're we're trying to do our best, and then Satan just plows into us with his deadly punch of bitterness. Heavenly Father, you see these hands. You see those that will be be listening to this online, all alone. God, I pray that you will invade where we are as, as 
with your healing grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray that you will flow into them. Show them how to embrace the cross. Show them how to receive that that wonderful healing strength.